Hey, this is the first half of a two-part chapter called Where I Lived and What I Lived For, where Henry's actually talking about how he uh, selects his place at Walden and what it's actually like to live on the shores of Walden. Give a listen. Between chapters one and two, Thoreau inserts a poem. He titles this section, Complemental Verses. The name of the poem is called The Pretensions of Poverty, and it's by Thomas Carey. Thou dost presume too much, poor needy wretch, to claim a station in the firmament, because thy humble cottage, or thy tub, nurses some lazy or pedantic virtue in the cheap sunshine or by shady springs with roots and pot herbs where thy right hand tearing these humane passions from the mind upon whose stalks fair blooming virtues flourish degradeth nature and benumbeth sense and gorgon-like turns active men to stone we not require the dull society of your necessitated temperance or that unnatural stupidity that knows nor joy nor sorrow, nor your ford falsely exalted passive fortitude above the active. This low abject brood that fix their seats in mediocrity become your servile minds, but we advance such virtues only as admit excess. Brave, bounteous acts, regal magnificence, all-seeing prudence, magnanimity that knows no bound, and that heroic virtue for which antiquity hath left no name, but patterns only, such as Hercules, Achilles, Theseus. Back to thy loathed cell, and when thou seest the new enlightened sphere, study to know but what those worthies were. Chapter 2. Where I Lived and What I Lived For. At a certain season of our life, we are accustomed to consider every spot as the possible site of a house. I have thus surveyed the country on every side within a dozen miles of where I live. In imagination, I have bought all the farms in succession, for all were to be bought, and I knew their price. I walked over each farmer's premises, tasted his wild apples, discoursed on husbandry with him, took his farm at his price, at any price, mortgaging to hit it to him in my mind, even put a higher price on it, took everything but a deed of it, took his word for his deed, for I clearly loved to talk, cultivated it, and him too, for, to some extent, I trust, and withdrew when I had enjoyed it long enough, leaving him to carry it on. This experience entitled me to be regarded as a sort of real estate broker by my friends. Wherever I sat, there I might live, and the landscape radiated from me accordingly. What is a house but a sedes, a seat? Better if a country seat. I discovered many a site for a house not likely to be soon improved, which some might have thought too far from the village, but to my eyes the village was too far from it. Well, there I might live, I said, and there I did live for an hour, a summer, and a winter life, saw how I could let the years run off, buffet the winter through, and see the spring come in. The future inhabitants of this region, wherever they may place their houses, may be sure that they have been anticipated. An afternoon sufficed to lay out the land into orchard, woodlot, and pasture, and to decide what fine oaks or pines should be left to stand before the door, and whence each blasted tree could be seen to the best advantage. And then I let it lie, fallow, perchance, for a man is rich in proportion to the number of things which he can afford to let alone. My imagination carried me so far that I even had the refusal of several farms. The refusal was all I wanted, but I never got my fingers burned by actual possession. The nearest that I came to actual possession was when I bought the Hollowell place and had begun to sort my seeds and collected materials with which to make a wheelbarrow to carry it on or off with. But before the owner gave me a deed of it, his wife, every man has such a wife, 
changed his mind, changed her mind, and wished to keep it, and he offered me ten dollars to release him. Now, to speak the truth, I had but ten cents in the world, and it surpassed my arithmetic to tell if I was that man who had ten cents, or who had a farm, or ten dollars, or altogether. However, I let him keep the ten dollars and the farm too, for I had carried it far enough, or rather to be generous, I sold him the farm for just what I gave for it, and he was not a rich man, made him a present of ten dollars, and still had my ten cents, and seeds, and materials for a wheelbarrow left. I found thus that I had been a rich man without any damage to my property, but I retained the landscape, and I have since annually carried off what it yielded without a wheelbarrow. With respect to landscapes, I am monarch of all I survey. My right there is none to dispute. I have frequently seen a poet withdraw, having enjoyed the most valuable part of a farm, while the crusty farmer supposed that he had got a few wild apples only. Why, the owner does not know it for many years when a poet has put his farm in rhyme, the most admirable kind of invisible fence, has fairly impounded it, milked it, skimmed it, and got all the cream, and left the farmer only the skimmed milk. The real attractions of the Hollowell farm to me were its complete retirement, being about two miles from the village, half a mile from the nearest neighbor, and separated from the highway by a broad field, its bounding on a river, that is, I began to spend my nights as well as my days there, which by accident was on Independence Day or 4th of July, 1845. My house was not finished for winter, but was merely a defense against the rain, without plastering or chimney, the walls being of rough weather-stained boards with wide chinks, which made it cool at night. The upright white-hewn studs and freshly planed door and window casings gave it a clean and airy look, especially in the morning when its timbers were saturated with the dew, so that I fancied that by noon some sweet gum would exude from them. To my imagination, it retained throughout the day more or less of this auroral character, reminding me of a certain house on a mountain which I had visited the year before. This was an airy and unplastered cabin, fit to entertain a traveling god, and where a goddess might trail her garments. The winds which passed over my dwelling were such as sweep over the ridges of mountains, bearing the bo- broken strains, or celestial parts only, of terrestrial music. The morning wind forever blows, the poem of creation is uninterrupted, but few are the ears that hear it. Olympus is but the outside of the earth everywhere. The only house I had been the owner of before, if I accept a boat, was a tent, which I used occasionally when making excursions in the summer, and this is still rolled up in my garret, but the boat, after passing from hand to hand, has gone down the stream of time. With this more substantial shelter about me, I had made some progress toward settling in the world. This frame, so slightly clad, was a sort of crystallization around me, and reacted on the builder. It was suggestive somewhat, as a picture in outlines. I did not need to go outdoors to take the air, for the atmosphere within had lost none of its freshness. It was not so much within doors as behind a door where I sat, even at the rainiest weather. The Haranavasa says, An abode without birds is like a meat without seasoning. Such was not my abode, for I found myself suddenly neighbor to the birds, not by having imprisoned one, but by having caged myself near them. I was not only nearer to some of those which commonly frequent the garden and the orchard, but to those wilder and more thrilling songsters of the forest, which never, or rarely, serenade a villager, the wood thrush, the veery, the scarlet tanager, the field sparrow, the whippoorwill, and many others. I was seated by the shore of a small pond, about a mile and a half south of the village of Concord, and somewhat higher than it, in the midst of an extensive wood between that town and Lincoln, and about two miles south of that our only field known to fame, Concord Battleground. But I was so low in the woods that the opposite shore, half a mile off, like the rest, covered with wood, was my most distant horizon. For the first week, whenever I looked out on the pond, it impressed me like a tarn high up on the side of a mountain, 
its bottom far above the surface of other lakes, and, as the sun arose, I saw it throwing off its mighty clothing of mist, and here and there, by degrees, its soft ripples, or its smooth reflecting surface were revealed, while the mists, like ghosts, were stealthily withdrawing in every direction into the woods, as at the breaking up of some nocturnal conventicle. The very dew seemed to hang upon the trees later into the day than usual, as on the sides of mountains. This small lake was of most value as a neighbor in the intervals of a gentle rainstorm in August, when, both air and water being perfectly still, but the sky overcast, mid-afternoon, had all the serenity of evening, and the wood thrush sang around and was heard from shore to shore. A lake like this is never smoother than at such a time, and the clear portion of the air above it being shallow and darkened by clouds, the water, full of light and reflections, becomes a lower heaven itself, so much the more important. From a hilltop nearby, where the wood had recently been cut off, there was a pleasing vista southward across the pond, through a wide indentation in the hills which form the shore there, where their opposite sides, sloping towards each other, suggested a stream flowing out in that direction through a wooded valley, but stream there was none. That way I looked between and over the near green hills to some distant and higher ones in the horizon, tinged with blue. Indeed, by standing on tiptoe, I could catch a glimpse of some of the peaks of the still bluer and more distant mountain ranges in the northwest, those true blue coins from, be from heaven's own mint, and also of some portion of the village. But in other directions, even from this point, I could not see over or beyond the woods which surround me. It is well to have some water in your neighborhood, to give buoyancy to and float the earth. One value, even of the smallest well, is that when you look into it, you see that the earth is not continent, but insular. This is important, as that it keeps butter cool. When I looked across the pond from this peak towards the Sudbury Meadows, which in time of flood I distinguished elevated perhaps by a mirage in their seething valley, like a coin in the basin, all the earth beyond the pond appeared like a thin crust, insulated and floated even by the small sheet of intervening water, and I was reminded that this on which I dwelt was but dry land." Though the view from my door was still more contracted, I did not feel crowded or confined in the least. There was pasture enough for my imagination. The low shrub oak plateau to which the opposite shore arose, arose stretched away from the prairies of the west and the steppes of Tartary, affording ample room for all the, ro ro uh, all the roving families of men. There are none happy in the world but beings who enjoy freely a vast horizon, said Damodara, where his, when his herds required new and larger pastures. Both place and time were changed, and I dwelt nearer to those parts of the universe and to those eras in history which had at most attracted me. Where I live was as far off as many a region viewed nightly by astronomers, we are wont to imagine rare and delectable places in some remote and more celestial corner of the system, beyond the constellation of Cassiopeia's chair, far from noise and disturbance. I discovered that my house actually had its site in such a withdrawn, but forever new and unprofaned part of the universe. If it were worth the while to settle in those parts, near to the Pleiades, Pleiades or the Hyades, or the Adelbaran or Altar, then I was really there, or at an equal remoteness from the life which I had left behind, dwindled and twinkling with his fine array to my nearest neighbor, and to be seen only in moonless nights by him. Such was that part of creation where I had squatted. There was a shepherd that did live, and held his thoughts as high, as were the mounts whereon his flocks did hourly feed him by. What would we think if, of the shepherd's life if his flocks always wandered to higher pastures than his thoughts? Every morning was a cheerful invitation to make my life of equal simplicity, and I may say, innocence with nature herself. 
I have been as sincere a worshiper of Aurora as the Greeks. I got up early and bathed in the pond. That was a religious exercise and one of the best things which I did. They say that characters were engraven on the bathing tub of King Chin Thang to this effect. Renew thyself completely each day. Do it again and again and forever again. I can understand that. Morning brings back the heroic ages. I was as much affected by the faint hum of a mosquito making its invisible and unimaginable tour through my apartment at earliest dawn when I was sitting with door and windows open as I could be by any trumpet that ever sang of fame. It was Homer's Requiem, itself an Iliad and Odyssey in the air, singing its own wrath and wanderings. There was something cosmical about it, a standing advertisement, still till forbidden, of the everlasting vigor and fertility of the world. The morning, which is the most memorable season of the day, is the awakening hour. Then there is at least somnolence in us, and for an hour, at least, some part of us awakes which slumbers all the rest of the day and night. Little is to be expected of that day, if it can be called a day, to which we are not awakened by our genius, but by the mechanical nudgings of some servitor, are not awakened by our own newly acquired force and aspirations from within, accompanied by the undulations of celestial music, instead of factory bells, and a fragrance filling the air to a higher life than we fell asleep from, and thus the darkness bear it fruit and prove itself to be good no less than the light. That man who does not believe that each day contains an earlier, more sacred, and auroral hour than he has yet profaned, has despaired of life, and is pursuing a descending and darkening way. After a partial cessation of his sensuous life, the soul of man, or its organs rather, are reinvigorated each day, and his genius tries again what noble life it can make. All memorable events, I should say, transpire in morning time and in a morning atmosphere. The Vedas say, all intelligences awake with the morning. Poetry and art, and the fairest and most memorable of the actions of men, date from such an hour. All poets and heroes, like Memnon, are the children of Aurora and emit their music at sunrise. To him whose elastic and vigorous thoughts keep pace with the sun, the day is a perpetual morning. It matters not what the clocks say or the attitudes and labors of men. Morning is when I am awake and there is a dawn in me. Moral reform is the effort to throw off sleep. Why is it that men give so poor an account of their day if they have not been slumbering? They are not such poor calculators. If they had not been overcome with drowsiness, they would have performed something. The millions are awake enough for physical labor, but only one in a million is awake enough for an effective intellectual exertion, only one in a hundred millions to a poetic or divine life. To be awake is to be alive. I have never yet man who, met a man who is quite awake. How could I have looked him in the face? We must learn to reawaken and keep ourselves awake, not by mechanical aids, but by an infinite expectation of the dawn, which does not forsake us in our soundest sleep. I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue and so make a few objects beautiful. But it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do. To affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of the arts. Every man is tasked to make his life, even in its details, worthy of the contemplation of his most elevated and critical hour. If we refused, or rather used up, such paltry information as we get, the oracles would distinctly inform us how this might be done. Hello, this is Tammy Rose, again, to offer some commentary on uh, chapter two of Walden, the section that I just read. Um, first of all, the if you have the written version of Walden and you're trying to follow along. Um, the poem that he includes is by someone whose last name is spelled 
C-A-R-E-W. Um, and I actually had to re-record the poem um, because it's pronounced Carey, Thomas Carey, who was born in 1595 um, and lived to 1640. Um, he is apparently among the cavalier group of Caroline poets. Um, I actually want to get right into chapter two uh, because it's it talks about um, Walden and gives a lot of detail um, about the pond itself, which is um, very cool. And I had really loved going over um, hearing him talk about how he constructed things and um, and the details, especially when he's talking about like having the the pine pitch on his hands, even as he's eating lunch, and sort of it like flavoring his sandwich. Um, I live, I'm lucky enough personally to live like, you know, 20 minutes away from Walden Pond. Um, and I grew up swimming in it every summer. And actually yesterday was the very first day that I swam this season. Um, it was May 22. I'm recording this May 23rd. Um, on Margaret Fuller's birthday, by the way. Um, but yesterday was really hot, I think, unseasonably so, maybe like 80, maybe 85 degrees. Um, I had just gone for a lovely um, walking tour um, of the um, the Amble, the Emerson Thoreau, or the Thoreau Emerson Amble, um, that you can get a... Um, you, you, I think they offer them regularly. Um, the Concord Museum does. And if you buy a ticket from the Concord Museum, um, you know, you can, it's literally like you go across the street. Um, or even if you're, you happen to be in town and you want to go by yourself, find the Concord Museum. Um, Emerson's house is directly across the street. Um, and there is an entrance to the Amble in the back of Emerson's backyard. Um, so I highly recommend that. We had left at 11 and, you know, it was overcast. It was warm, but not, you know, not too hot. Um, all of the, um, a lot of the, the forest itself was dry. Um, and the reason I'm uh, highlighting the Thoreau Emerson ramble is that you can literally walk from the back of Emerson's house to Walden Pond and the cabin site itself, if you really want to. And right now it's, um, you know, or since the 1930s, the amble has been sort of divided by Route 2, which is a major, kind of a major highway, but there's, you know, there are lights, so you can cross. Um, so make sure that, that if you're, if you're ready to do the full, the full on nature thing, um, and it's, it's pretty much one road, so, or one path, one trail, as you're walking through the forest, um, it's not that you're really going to get lost. Um, so you just sort of, you can literally walk, as I said, from like the museum, um, you know, you go to the back of Emerson and then you're going to go um, behind the firehouse. And there, there are areas where there, there are little bridges and you go over the mill dam of Concord. Um, and right now they have a lot of um, boards in muddy places. So if you're a person who's not really good in terms of balance, you should be careful. Um, but it's really beautiful. You go through, you know, a pine forest. Um, there are actually a bunch of pink lady slippers in bloom and they're very rare and they only last for like two weeks. Um, so I was very lucky to find a whole bunch of them. Um, and then you're actually going to walk right by Fairyland Pond, uh, which Louisa May Alcott had wrote, wrote, written about. Um, she actually wrote stories um, for the Emerson children who were sort of a um, younger than she was. So they would they would play and she would write stories for them. Um, and they named this beautiful spot uh, Fairyland Pond. And there's actually like it's it's a in terms of size, it's much smaller than Walden. You can get around it um, if you if you take this extra path, um, you can circumnavigate it in like 20 minutes. It's very lovely. Um, if you continue on the amble, you also go by Brister's Hill, and Brister Freeman was an African American um, uh, native of Concord, uh, native of Concord, or he might have been enslaved and come to Concord. I'm not remembering at the moment, but they have a marker um, because you know, and and he actually died, I believe, when Henry was a boy. Um, but there's a marker, and we are going to come to a section about him later on in Walden. Um, the if if you're walking you'll see a a stone with an engraving um where um 
with, with the quote from Walden where Henry actually mentions his name. Um, and there's a whole chapter about neighbors, and we'll actually get into that. Um, so, but to, to get, didn't I say I wanted to talk about chapter two? All right. That was a little, that was a complete tangent. Um, just because I love it when he's talking about Walden, the pond itself. And as I was swimming, I was like, I have to tell people to make sure that they have their own relationship with this pond, um, separate it, like it can be parallel to the book that we're reading. Um, but I think that it's very important that everybody, comes to it as, you know, as its own place. Um, I know some people who think of it as being so holy that they're never going to set foot in it, literally. Um, they walk around it. They're very quiet, um, you know, but there are moments, and I was very happy to grow up with it, knowing of it as a watering hole, as a beach, as a, um, as I mentioned, my, like my, my mother has just passed away. And she grew up on um, an island in the Azores. Um, so she grew up with a view of water every day. And when we would come to Walden, she um, just really felt like the water would calm her. Um, and she thought it was a, such a beautiful place to be. Um, and it, it re- I feel like definitely in the Boston area, um, there are many places where you can get away from buildings and noise and highways. Um, but Walden is definitely this beautiful oasis of nature. Um, but it's also super accessible. You know, like there's a parking lot across the street from Walden. Um, it, but you can get down to the water and be in, I would say, within five minutes. Um, as opposed to like having to drive to the ocean and, you know, whatever. There always seems like it's, a, it's more of a, of a schlep. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but Walden himself, uh, Walden itself, um, especially the way Henry's describing it, um, you know, he's talking about, um, looking at different places where he wants to build his, uh, his cabin, his hut. And, uh, he mentions the Hollowell farm, um, which I don't know exactly where that is on the map. Um, but I think it's interesting that he was, thinking of a farm and he's like he like he obviously he's looking at like every single place in Concord um I think it's interesting that he doesn't mention um I think it's Charles Stearns Wheeler um who was his uh, college roommate um and that he lived in Lincoln um near um the um the pond that's currently um um where the Decordova Museum is um, so that, um, his, his college roommate had built a pretty much a similar cabin, um, to the one that Henry built, but it was a little bit more sturdy. And I think it was, um, I think there was already like a, um, uh, like a fire, uh, you know, a, a hearth, um, you know, or a, a covered, a covered, um, uh, cooking stove there. So I think it was like a little bit more sophisticated than the, the hut that, um, Henry eventually builds. Um, but he had like stayed there with his friend for like two weeks. Um, and he had actually asked his family, um, while he was away, um, if it, like Henry had asked the family if he could actually stay there and the family wouldn't let him because, you know, they, they're like, who is this kid? Um, and it's, it's sort of funny that, um, you know, that the family was a little bit, um, had sort of denied him the use of it, uh, because his, his college roommate was actually away in Europe. Um, and then he ended up passing away, sadly, um, in Germany, I believe, um, as a young man. Um, but he was a member of the transcendentalist circle and it's entirely possible that, um, that he would have been known as one of the people, um, that was, um, you know, one of the writers, one of the, um, one of the people who grew into somebody, you know, to parallel Thoreau. Um, and I think it's interesting that Thoreau, um, kind of like doesn't mention him and doesn't sort of drop his name. Maybe he was still mad at the family. Um, but I feel like this is like his death over in Europe, is something that, like, I wouldn't say that it directly haunts Henry, but it's got to have been something that affected him um, in the same way that his, or similar to um, the way that the death of his uh, his brother John um, 
really affected him. Like I'm, I'm still convinced that that's, um, or, you know, that literally that is why, why Thoreau went to Walden, um, was to work on his first book, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, um, which is dedicated to his brother. And I'm convinced, like to go further, that that sort of impelled him to become a writer and that impelled him to work hard because he wanted to, when death enters into the picture, it's sort of this huge impossibility and you realize that there's things that you can't change, but things that you can and and things that you can force (laughs) to come into being are things like books and writing. Um, So anyway, um, again, so Charles Stearns Wheeler... Um, and it was called Flint's Pond, um, at the time. Um, and it's, uh, the decor of a museum is located in Lincoln. Um, it's, um, the pond itself is probably just a mile or two away from Walden on the Lincoln side. So if you ever do get a chance to go to that museum, um, you can sort of look over, um, and actually, I think it's a it's a much larger um, pond than Walden. Um, so I think it's and I was I was f- think of Walden as being like the perfect size. Um, and there's a gentleman who has done some archaeology and tried to figure out where Charles um, Charles's cabin was, and he thinks he's found the spot. Um, so that's that's also another piece where it's you know it's it's not really a tourist spot. Um, it, it's not it's not a place that people who, um, you know, are not fanatic about Thoreau would be interested in, but it's interesting that it's, um, you know, it's, it's one of these places that might have been that's actually, um, um, associated with Thoreau and it's, it's one of those big secrets. So I myself am interested in finding it and just sort of, you know, trying to reimagine this book as if you were, um, as if, if, if it had taken place at a whole different pond. Um, I, I personally, be, you know, I started this saying, by saying like, what a connection I personally feel to Walden. Um, I, I literally just swam across yesterday and I feel like swimming is one of the best things. Like he has that, he has that line. It was the best thing I did when I was there, like, like swimming every day. Um, which is, I, like, I agree, like swimming there is fabulous. Um, to get back to the, to the chapter, I love how he's like literally, literally considering every farm. Um, and he gets kind of close a couple times. Um, although I don't really know how he would. So again, it's, um, Flint's pond that the decor of a museum looks over. Um, sometimes it's called Sandy pond. Um, it's very large and really lovely to look at. Um, I love the section, uh, in this, um, in this chapter where he's, he's not only looking at all of the farms, thinking to buy them, but he's talking to the future, um, inhabitants of Concord. Um, when you drive around that area, it's actually very wealthy right now. When I was a teenager and my father had died and my mother and I were sort of, um, mourning him and not really knowing what to do. We would spend a lot of Sundays after church um, just sort of driving around and looking at a lot of the big mansions and the yards and um, just trying to imagine what, um, you know, who lived there and, and who these, um, not even like the, the fact that they're rich, but just all of, all of the people in all of these houses. There are plenty of houses that are very old, but in, I feel like in Massachusetts, you can kind of tell, um, you know, roughly what. Uh, what decade or what era a house was built in? You know, there was a um, a little bit of a a boom in real estate in the twenties, um, and you know, at least in the you know the nineteen twenties. This is what I'm saying. Um, and then I think in the fifties and the seventies. Um, and it's fun to to drive around places like um, like like any town in Massachusetts, but specifically Concord, um, because you know that there are houses from. 1600s and the 1700s and the 1800s and the ones that look um, old have so much character to them. Um, so it's fun to think that um, Henry's thinking about all the people who are um, going to be living in them in the future. Um, 
he, when he's describing Walden, um, and he's even talking about like how he really didn't need to open a window because the freshness of the air was uh, fine inside because there were plenty of chinks in the hut that he built. Um, there are a couple really great um, things that are quoted from this chapter. Um, one of my favorite lines is, to be awake is to be alive. I have never yet man met a man who was quite awake. How could I have looked him in the face? <laughs> I love that. Because, um, you know, he's sort of saying that we all kind of are sleepwalking through life, which I totally agree with. Um, I really envy him that he can, like, just living on the edge of Walden, um, having a sense, he talks about like the heaven, the heavens, like being in the water and when the water is so still and the fact that he can look up at the, at the constellations, um, the Cassiopeia's chair and, um, just being able to, to really, um, <laughs> like he's, he's talking about all of these beautiful, poetic and grand things. And I want to alert you to a pun that he keeps making throughout. Um, you know, like he has, he has this line, um, you know, if it were worth the while to settle in those parts near to the, near to the Pleiades or the Hyades or Aldebaran or Altair, then I was really there or at an equal remoteness from the life, which I had left behind dwindled and twinkling with as fine a ray to my nearest neighbor and to be seen only in moonless nights by him. Thus was that part of creation where I had squatted. Every time he says squatted, um, he's using that as a pun, meaning like, you know, to, to squat on a land, to occupy it without really owning it. Um, but also like literally to squat and to, like defecate. And later on in the, in the chapter, or not in the chapter, uh, but in the book, he, he keeps talking about how he's enriching the land by squatting on it. And not only is he enriching the land by, you know, occupying it and building it and blah, 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 um, but he's literally fertilizing it. Um, so always, always be aware of all of this. Um, I laughed when I was reading parts of this. Um, one part where I laughed was um, he's, he's talking about the depth of the water and, you know, he's, he's waxing so poetic um, it's well to have some water in your neighborhood to give buoyancy to and float the earth. One value even of the smallest well is that when you look into it, you see that the earth is not continent, but insular. This is important in that it keeps butter cool. <laughs> right? Like, he's like, he, he's like, we're all just floating on islands. The world is mostly made up of water. And why is this important? Because um, your butter's going to spoil if you don't have water. Um, I think that's like hysterical. Um, and, and so especially, I don't know, I don't know why it is. So I was talking about like when we're, when we were hiking through the woods, that there are all these boards that they have in place and that there's a bridge over the Millbrook. Um, and because for some reason Concord is, feels very, um, swampy at times, especially like April and May, um, where, you know, like I keep thinking of the, the Brazilian song, the waters of March, um, where when the spring comes, it just kind of floods everything. So there are parts of Concord that if you only come, like if you only come in the summer, you're only going to notice how it is in the summer. But if you visit on a regular basis, um, you'll notice that the Concord River, like it, it, you know, floods a whole area. And there was a huge thing about um, the dams that they had wanted to build further up further up river that would stop this kind of flooding because the farmers in Concord would use that for hay um, to feed their animals. So by using dams, they were, you know, like every time, every time somebody builds something, they, they don't think about how it impacts the rest of the ecosystem. Um, and Henry actually testified in court because he made measurements of the river, um, especially in his later years, like he died at 44. So in his early 40s, I guess, he was constantly measuring the river. Um, but Concord just really seems like a very swampy land. So when he's when he's writing about the butter and all the water, um, you know, he, I distinguished elevated perhaps by the mirage in their seething valley, like a coin in the basin, all the earth beyond the pond appeared like a thin crust 
insulated and floated even by the small sheet of intervening water, and I was reminded that this on which I dwelt was but dry land. Um, you know, inf- emphasizing the, the, the dry piece, because it doesn't always, <laughs> doesn't always end up dry. Um, and then he talks about, like, like I'm kind of going backwards, the gentle rainstorm in August. Um, the, the few times that I have been out in the rain, um, sometimes, you know, I'm swimming in Walden and, uh, you know, a sudden rainstorm will develop. It happened a couple of years ago during the annual gathering, um, where I had, um, so every year they have this giant annual gathering for Thoreau and all sorts of scholars come and, um, there's just days of marvelous, you know, lectures and presentations and whatever. But there was one day, and it, it always happens around his birthday on July 12th. And there was one day when it was just so hot <laughs> that I was like, you know what, I'm going to skip this and I'm just going to go swimming. Um, and then of course it rained. Um, but you know, in the middle of swimming, um, I, you know, you're, you actually are supposed to get out because there's a chance of lightning and whatever. Um, they, they do their best to, to, evacuate everybody from the pond and I had gotten out of the pond and I was trying to walk back but I had gotten stuck and so I was just on the path um, and I was able to experience this rainstorm and even though the path was covered with trees like even though and I was soaked from swimming um, you know within seconds I also remember just being drenched um, and it was lovely <laughs> so if you ever gonna you know get stuck in a rainstorm you should do it at Walden um, Henry liked it and I loved it and I highly recommend it as just a life experience because it's, um, it was really beautiful. Um, one of my favorite sections here, the only house I had been the owner of before, if I accept a boat, was a tent. So, um, <laughs> and I love it because he sort of makes reference to this boat, um, you know, and like, he's making a joke, of course, like this house the only house he had was a tent. Um, but when he's talking about the boat, he's talking about um, the boat that he'd built with his brother called the Muscatiquid, um, which means um, the grass-grown river. And again, like if you're um, walking over the Thoreau-Emerson Ramble, um, there's a little bridge that goes over the mill, prawn, the mill brook, which goes through the center of town. And you can literally see um, how the grass is growing in this, in this pond. And the, you know, for some reason, the grass doesn't seem to actually emerge from the water. Um, and you can see the tops of the grass, um, flowing in the direction that the river is flowing. Um, and Muscatiquid is a Native American word. Um, I know that there were Nipmuc, the Nipmuc tribe, um, was there. I don't know if it's a Nipmuc word, um, um, so now I'm actually forgetting. So, but there are lots of amazing um, Native American um, signs and history in and around Concord. Um, I think I had mentioned before, um, there's a tree in the middle of Concord that they put up a plaque, um, 1935, um, to commemorate the, you know, tercentenary, um, the 300th um, an- anniversary of Concord. Um, but the Jericho tree is supposed to be, you know, the tree isn't there anymore. Um, just the plaque is, but the, the, it was seen as like, here's the symbol of where everybody signed a treaty and the native Americans were nice and we were nice to them and everybody went home happy and it was a beautiful exchange, blah, blah, blah. Um, that plaque was actually commemorating kind of a, an artificial paper that had been done retroactively, like, 50 years later, they talked to people and they were like, can you describe what happened that day? And then they committed that to paper. Um, but if you actually go into um, something deeper, um, there's a whole bunch of history written um, about Concord and about New England called the King Philip's War. Um, and <laughs> this is a whole other tangent. Um, but there's a, a Native American called Metacomet. Um, and the Americans called him King Philip. Um, and they wanted to, um, uh, pretend that, you know, the, the, the forces of the settlers and the forces of the Native Americans had exactly the same kind of ruling system. And that if there's a war, you know, it wasn't just the white men taking over people with guns and, um, blankets full of smallpox. Anyway, 
um, to get back to the boat. I got, I got distracted by, by its name. Um, the boat was the boat that Henry had taken with his brother, um, and had created all those notes for a week on the Concord and Merrimack rivers for his first book. Um, it was actually two weeks. It was a two week trip. Um, and after he came back and his brother died, he, uh, he actually sold that boat to Hawthorne. So he's talking about the boat. Um, and he says the boat after passing from hand to hand, which had gone down the, has gone down the stream of time because he sold it to Hawthorne and Hawthorne had no idea how to row. Um, and Hawthorne's written about this, uh, you know, he's like, Henry, Henry knew exactly how to steer this boat. And, you know, I, I, when I had it, I was like an untamed beast in my hands. Um, and then I think Hawthorne either gave it to somebody, but I think Henry had literally seen it, um, somewhere and it had just fallen. I don't even want to say into disrepair, but like literally had rotted away, I think within his lifetime. And I, I think he wrote about it maybe in a journal or something. So um, you know, like the hut gets turned into, you know, a, a, a pig barn, the boat rots away, like all of us are going to rot away, but it's still, um, it's still painful to hear about it because it would be so wonderful to have an example of the boat and the boat has actually been rebuilt and recreated. You know, it sat in, um, in front of the Concord Museum. Um, it's actually floated on Walden, you know, like, like there, there are boat builders who, tried to, um, tried to essentially recreate the, his boat. Um, and I'm sure that more people will do it again in the future. Um, but yeah, I have, I have pictures of, um, you know, people who've ridden in this boat and I saw it at Walden myself. So it floated. Um, and it's, it's fun. Um, again, it's one of those ways that you can time travel, um, by being in a place and enjoying the, tactile experience of something that somebody was writing about like 200 years ago. So, um, anyway, I think I'm, um, uh, and he mentions that he, uh, that he went into his cabin and he says by accident, um, on independence day on the 4th of July. Um, and I think that he, um, oh, his, his brother's birthday, I believe is, I want to say the fifth. So John's birthday. So if you, if you're reading his journal and stuff like that, there, like you can suddenly put all the pieces of the puzzle together, especially about his brother. And I think it's interesting that, you know, if he goes to live there on the 4th of July, that it's symbolic because of, you know, it's the day of independence, blah, blah, blah. But I think the first night that he um, spends there, he or the first morning that he wakes up um, is his brother's birthday. And he doesn't commit anything to the journal. So this is complete speculation on my part. Um, so I wonder if he even thought about it and it just didn't write it down. Um, but he's going there to write his first book about his brother. And um, he doesn't really talk about ghosts or people haunting him, but you know, and, and also very significantly, he doesn't actually mention his brother's name in the book. Um, so that's another huge piece. Um, his brother, um, died of lockjaw, um, because he had cut himself, um, uh, on New Year's day and died, I think like 11 days later. Um, and Henry was with him during that whole sickness. And then he was also, um, Henry was also taken with this, um, like empathetic, sympathetic, uh, illness as well. And people were, his family was literally afraid that he was going to die too, that his, um, his, he was experiencing all the same symptoms and, you know, this was something that was very real. Um, and his family prayed and, you know, they, they thought he had a cut that nobody could discover. Um, and everybody was really terrified. Um, and Henry managed to, um, to overcome it and get over it. Um, but I like, and this, this is, this is me as a playwright. This is me as somebody who's just reading the history and putting all these dates together. Um, I feel like the, the angel of death was hovering over Concord. And I think that especially Lydian Emerson, um, had loved Thoreau like a sister, 
Um, there's oh, there's a book called American Bloomsbury, which is a whole separate topic, um, but that book kind of insinuates that there was a little bit more happening between Lydian um, and Thoreau, but I don't think so. Um, Thoreau had moved into the Emerson house at least twice um, while Emerson was away on lecture tours and was sort of helping with the kids and, you know, helping be a handyman. Um, and, um, and had gotten to know Lydian and they were, they were sympathetic, um, friends. Uh, she loved animals. He loved animals. Like they, they just had a lot in common. Um, so as Henry's recovering from this illness or as he's going through this illness, I'm certain that Lydian would have had him in her prayers. And as a playwright, I actually wrote a monologue where she's, you know, she's praying and, and, you know, it's sort of like a twilight zone thing where it's kind of like, you know, don't let him die. I will, I will do anything, but just don't let him die. Um, and then of course the angel of death would say, sure. And, um, sadly her own child died, um, a couple of days later. Like, I, I think that, um, that John Thoreau's brother, I want to say he died like January 11th, I think 1941. Um, and Waldo, um, who was five, Waldo um, Emerson, little Waldo. Um, I want to say he died like January 21st. So I think there's like 10 days in there. Um, and and because he had gotten, I don't know if it was scarlet fever or something, he got some kind of infection um, and died within like three days. So <laughs> like the very fact that those two families would have um, such such huge events um, brought Thoreau and Emerson close and the two families close, um, as well. So anyway, I will, uh, I will stop there. Um, cause that's kind of a heavy topic to talk about. Um, but I hope you enjoyed the first part of the second chapter. Um, I'm going to talk more about how Henry actually used this chapter, um, where I lived and what I lived for, um, on his, uh, lectures, um, his lecture tour. Um, and I think there's just, um, I think like it's short enough that I'll do another episode and that'll be the rest of, um, this chapter. And so we're moving right along. Thank you very much.